podcast from the 26th of December 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my Boxing Day special co-host, Jon. <laughs> Boxing Day? That's, a, that's a, a UK thing, man. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, this, is okay. a, this is a time of peace and, and, and safety and stuff, and you start with boxing, I don't know. Yeah, playing with all the boxes that your presents came in, obviously. Oh, it's unboxing day. <laughs> that was yesterday. <laughs> that was yesterday. Today is playing with the boxes. It's all very different. It's all very yeah. complicated. Oh, anyway, it's the last episode of this year, so let's try and stay awake until the end of the year and uh, start again fresh next year. Yeah, indeed. So, happy Christmas. I uh, hope everybody had a... Uh, a good festive day yesterday, if you're listening to this as it goes live. Um, as as Jon said, it's the last episode of 2017, and uh, that means that it's our exciting crystal ball-gazing exercise next episode with future predictions. Ooh, see that? Dave is predicting our next episode be about predicting. I know. It's magic, I it's tell you. All powered by big data. <laughs> It's true, we are powered by big data. I mean, without it, we wouldn't have a show. This is true. So let's hope uh, our predictions go well next time. Yeah, at least better than they did last year, right? <laughs> Although I won, so that's that's okay. Yeah, you won because you were the least bad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a win is a win, I tell you. <sighs> Accolades along. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you anymore. Let's talk about okay. other people's things, interesting things in the world. Let's talk about some news. Okay, let's do it. Okay, we just have a hodgepodge of things today, because it's the end of the year, and it's a bit of a slow news day. I guess there's a lot of articles out there doing recaps and uh, yeah, future-looking as well, just as we are doing, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So there's not that much real hard stuff coming out, so... The first one I want to call out, actually, is uh, about Apache Pulsar. Uh, listeners will remember, of course, we had the people from uh, Streamlio on. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, about Talking about Apache Pulsar. And I, In episode 64? Uh, I trust you. I mean, you do the counting, right? We, last <laughs> episode, we totally decided I couldn't count, so that's great. It's one less thing for me to do. But uh, CG actually put a, um, a new blog post up. Uh, came yep. out the 1st of December, so it's a bit old already. But the interesting there is that one of the things that came up in me at the interview was how you could compare it to Kafka. Yeah. Because obviously Kafka is uh, the granddaddy out there. Most people working in the space know what Kafka does. Pulsar is a new kid on the block. So by being able to kind of contrast and compare, it, it makes it for me easier to kind of understand what something can do. Yeah. And this little blog is called Comparing Pulsar and Kafka Unified Queuing and Streaming, which is pretty much the answer to my question. So I'm not going to go into the, the, the blog itself. It's another well, good blog from uh, the Pulsar guys. So if you're looking at Pulsar, do uh, do yourself a favor and read through it. There's a lot of images in there as well. But at the bottom, that's the one that I am uh, was drawn to, is the Pulsar comparison with, Afka, with Apache Kafka table, where they just put some stuff next to each other, like concepts, consumption, uh, acking, which is a nice word that nobody understands unless you're in this space, <laughs> <laughs> retention, time to live stuff. So it's a, a small little co- uh, table that uh, I guess will help people get an idea of uh, yeah how to compare, contrast, and uh, choose one over the other. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really useful because I think that, as you say, people people always compare something against something they already know. And as you say, Kafka is is 
pretty ubiquitous in this space if you're looking to do uh, streaming and, and messaging in some way, shape or form. Kafka's pretty much guaranteed to be in there somewhere. Uh, so yeah, the, the the key areas of consumption, uh, sorry, consumption. No idea what that is, but consumption even. It's <laughs> a cross between uh, contempt, contempt and consumption. Maybe who knows? Consumption. Um, so consumption, acknowledgement, and retention are the key areas where uh, the pulsar folk um, suggest they have significant uh, differences and in, in their view, sort of improvements over Kafka. So yeah, as Tom's as. Tom says, <laughs> uh, "Okay, it's Boxing Day's people. It so, is Boxing uh, Day. Alcohol oh. fumes are still apparently close to uh, Dave's head. Yeah, and whoever Tom is out there, hey, good to hear you. Um, <laughs> the the uh, host the, now, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. It's, it's the third, the third string. So yeah, the uh, as Jon uh, said, the uh, um, pulsar comparison table at the end is is the real the real money shot here. It's the piece that uh, I think everybody should." familiarize themselves if they're interested in options uh, comparing Pulsar and Kafka. Yeah, and for any more in-depth information about Pulsar itself, please go and have a listen at our Pulsar episode. That'll give you everything and more, we hope. If any of your questions weren't answered, let us know. We'll have them back in. Indeed. So that's number one. After that, I wanted... Oh, yeah, that's another one. Uh, actually... I kind of want to give congratulations to Cloudera for a change because mm-hmm. they've been putting out some pretty good blogs. Mm-hmm. And here is another one from them. Just waiting for the page to load so I can remember what I'm talking about. And the title there is Hadoop Delegation Tokens Explained. And this is the age-old Kerberos story. Kerberos, we all know, love and adore it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think many of us actually really understand it or even want to understand it, as long as it works, is great. And if it doesn't work, you kind of throw your hands in the air and give up, right? <laughs> uh, that uh, that certainly has happened. Or, you know, call a professional services organization. Well, that's around. what I mean by throwing your hands up. <laughs> Let somebody else fix it for you. But uh, this is actually quite a lengthy blog. It's uh, quite long. And not only does it introduce the basic concepts of how security works in Hadoop, and as we've repeated often in the past, any Hadoop cluster should be secured. If it's a I don't know, one person, one job cluster, which is behind a firewall, you might get away with it. But in the days of uh, security breaches, GDPR and that kind of thing, securing your clusters is a good thing, good trademark. So it starts with the kind of uh, basics out there, explain what how the delegation tokens work. And it's uh, okay read. It's not too difficult but it does go into a bit of detail here and there which is where it's necessary so it, it does actually give you more than just the gener- general uh, uh, idea of the thing it gives you enough information to well, pretty much understand what is happening there yeah but, there's there's yeah. a few sort of pieces of config scattered here and there yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the, the flow diagrams for where tokens travel to and order and things like yeah. that but the one thing that I really like, which has been missing in my life, is the second half of it, where they start talking about when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you get errors with authentication exception, invalid token exception. Okay, why does that happen? Uh, tokens can be found in cash. So they give you explanations on how yeah. you can actually solve stuff. And that's always uh, the thing that I, I, I love to see in these things. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. And the, the the fact that they mix the explanation as text, the the sort of pictorial figures of the explanations, mm-hmm. and the chunks of you know config and code, yep. 
It really, really great article. Yeah, this took some time to put together. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking this is really quality work. I haven't read the whole thing in detail, but with the stuff that I did read through, I didn't see anything. I thought that's not right. So I think uh, it's also pretty accurate as far as I can tell. So I think these guys, uh, Xiao Chen and Yong Yong Zhang, have added some uh, real interesting uh, content to the internet. Indeed. Very good indeed. Yeah, apart from that, Gerbros, let's not talk too much about it, I guess. <laughs> it's the end of the year. Let's, let's, but, let's, be, let's be happy. <laughs> yeah, but if you do have to start chasing errors around, it could be a good source to uh, rely on to help you through these dark times. Yeah, and if at all possible, do try and get a distribution out there that has Kerberos, uh, maybe not out of the box, but in a kind of a managed, uh, hold your hand automated, fashion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing gets it fully automated, I guess, because you never know what other kind of little application solutions you want to bolt on top of your Hadoop platform, which don't yeah. have the full thing. But try and get uh, as much optimization in, uh, automatization in there as you can, because having to really worry about all the details. That's a lot of work. Or as mm-hmm. Dave said, get in a professional. That's definitely good, uh, good advice. All right. Uh, do you have anything to say about, to talk about? So I think you want to talk about <laughs> some Spark on containers, specifically Spark on Kubernetes, don't you? Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> what I want to talk about actually is uh, the whole big data and containers. And when we talk containers, of course, we're talking about Docker containers and all the orchestration platforms on top of it, like Docker Swarm, Kubernetes, Mesos, TCOS, whatever you may, may, may prefer, may like. I don't really care about it. The thing I want to bring out here is, and I've got a, about three or four articles in uh, that should be in the show notes to give you more background, and they're pretty good articles, but the articles themselves aren't what I want to talk about. It's more about that whole Hadoop and containers or Hadoop on containers um, hype, I would almost call it at the moment. Mm-hmm. If you read these articles, you think you can actually put Hadoop in container space. And when you actually start reading the articles, they usually talk about Spark in containers. And Spark does not equal Hadoop, and Hadoop does not equal Spark. They're two, they're not different, they're related, definitely, but they're not the same. And as far as I know, there is no way of having a Hive cluster in containers. And of course, Tom is going to prove to me, yes, it can be done. It's technology, everything can be done, obviously. But I don't think it's something you'd want. Spark on the other hand, yeah, I can see that happening, because Spark originally, I have no idea which came first, Spark or Hadoop, and when I talk about Hadoop here, I mean the Hadoop concept that the Yahoo guys um, uh, let's say, not commercialized, but uh, distributized it. (laughs) They were the first ones that actually made it a coherent whole, let's say. But Spark has always had a kind of a long side evolution as well. If you look at Databricks, they have Spark on clusters without having anything else from the Hadoop environment in there. And that's been running forever. Uh, a lot of the times when I had people talk to me about replacing Yarn in Hadoop with Mesos, for instance, that were usually customers that did only Spark. That mm. didn't do any Hive, didn't need Ranger, didn't need anything else. So for Sparking containers, I've done it, I've looked at it, and it works pretty well. It's pretty nice. But I'm a bit sad that I see all of these articles saying Hadoop on containers, because that's a bit of a lie, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you on this, uh, which is unfortunate because we we both like a good argument. But uh, <laughs> I think 
where you can cleanly separate components and you can cleanly, um, you know, th- they can exist in their own completely separate life cycle. And so something like Spark, you can see how that would work. You can see that you could have it, whether it was you know, Spark streaming or even you know some batch Spark work that was disconnected from a storage layer that it was interacting with. You can see how that might exist um, in a completely separate environment, whether it's you know containerized on Kubernetes, as, as these examples are, or you know as you say, any of the other. Uh, many different options. Uh, containerized, containerized Hadoop as a whole, as in the entire uh, wider Hadoop ecosystem. Uh, containers for me have always been, um, yes, you can do all sorts of exciting things with containers, but the core of them is largely try and keep them stateless. Um, you know the, the the true sort of microservices style approach. Um, you know you don't upgrade them, you don't maintain them, you just blow away, blow them away and instantiate new ones. Um, that's how you, in my mind, that's the pure kind of container approach. I think too many people are trying to treat containers um, just like virtualization, and I think yeah, it's as you say, it's technology. Anything's possible. Yeah, you can do it like that. But I think you're missing the power of containers if you start doing that. And in fact, you're sort of painting yourself into a corner somewhat. And I think that if you look at, you know, the things like, um, you know, Ranger for security or Atlas for governance, the last thing you want is your, <laughs> your, your Ranger instance and the, the, um, the, the state that's kept there or your Atlas instance and all the, all of your governance information to be blown away every time you start rolling around a new version of that. So it's, there are certain things I think that it can make sense to containerize. And I think you're right. Spark is probably one of those. I think the, the wider ecosystem, I think you need to think very carefully about how, um, how you might consider using containerization uh, on top of that. The, the sort of the, the other area, though, of course, is um, with Hadoop 3.0, we're starting to see sort of containerization on top of Hadoop. Mm-hmm. So rather than, uh, you know, replacing Yarn with uh, Mesos or whatever you might be looking at doing, um, actually having containerized applications that consume data from a data lake uh, orchestrated themselves by Yarn. So... Yeah, and that's the main difference, right? Because when I talk about Hadoop and containers, I mean Hadoop and Kubernetes, which yeah. is the orchestration layer around it. And that's where the issue is, because the orchestration that Hadoop has inherently knows what Hadoop does and is able to treat the Hadoop workloads not as a black box, but as something with intelligence. Yeah. The moment you replace Hadoop with Kubernetes of Mesos, you can still use con- Docker containers. And as you said, Join can do that now too in Hadoop 3. But it's the the, the whole management thing around it. If you if you purely look at Docker as a as a Docker as a container, then I mean the biggest example of having Dockerized Hadoop was Cloud uh, was CloudBreak. Yeah, CloudBreak in, uh, when it started, they had the whole Hadoop thing in containers. When they didn't use containers, they were used as you said as a virtual machine kind of approach where you had your yard and everything else running in there. And that was that was done primarily 
so that the uh, individual Hadoop components could be isolated from the underlying cloud provider yeah. elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to make a common base, so you could uh, yeah. deploy it everywhere. And that's how it used to be done, because if you look at cloud, uh, CloudBreak today, and I didn't like the, cloud, the, the, the Dockerized CloudBreak at all, because the whole Dockering... It, it introduced so many networking issues with the virtual network nicks and everything. It was a horrible thing to maintain, and usually it broke after a couple of months anyway. If you look at the new version of CloudBreak, which simply is a... Uh, well, simply, <laughs> nothing is simple in these worlds. But it's a, de- a management deployment uh, layer that makes it very easy to deploy your uh, Hadoop cluster. Once it's deployed, it doesn't use Docker at all anymore. The, the CloudBreak itself is still in a Docker container, as far as I can tell. But the cluster that it produces is just on IaaS or on, on hardware, I'd say. And yeah. from that point on, you have a normal cluster, which you can still manage through CloudBreak, doing some uh, uh, growing or shrinking, through, uh, dependent on certain metrics from Ambari going up across certain levels, thresholds. So it does give you some extra ease of use and ease of life things, but it's no longer a completely contained thing. And seeing them move away from that, let's put it all in a, a Docker virtual machine, it kind of strengthens my belief that for a Hadoop cluster, it's not a marriage made in heaven. And I would say, especially if you're still in the experimental phase, because what I have seen, and again, there's a, an emphasis on Spark here, but what I have seen is that once you're done with the experimentation and you don't need to have access to a hive table anymore to get extra data and things like that, once you have your model in Spark trained and it can be productionized, I see a lot of people then actually exporting that model to a container server, to a, to a Kubernetes cluster for all I care, to have it there as a REST interface that can be called. Because at that point, all you need is a REST API preferably one that scales very nicely and at that point it's so simplified let's say it doesn't change anymore you don't have anybody putting things together anymore so you can have a simple docker image and preferably with an orchestration layer that automatically scales it up and down you have more or less hits on that uh, rest api and that yeah i can see kubernetes or mesos or whatever you want to use uh, do a good job but for me that's not what i think of when i talk about a hadoop cluster yeah. So do, uh, here's a here's a question. Obviously, AWS have announced their sort of container service. Um, I must admit the name escapes me immediately. Um, do you think that we will see this same kind of um, confusion, if you like, um, across the uh, cloud providers as as they start to release more container based? solutions or do you think the uh, the virtualized instances approach is still um, going to be around for a good long time I'm not sure if I get you virtualized I mean it's public cloud it's always going to be virtualized the thing with the containers is that makes you easier to scale up and down faster mm-hmm. anyway because uh, having a docker container spin up is a lot faster than starting up a virtual machine yep. and you can put multiple docker containers on one virtual machine which means it's also cheaper and stuff so uh, but yeah the, the big three they're definitely pushing on this a lot and pushing on making this as a service yep. I also am blanking on the Amazon name but uh, on Azure which I kind of know a little bit better. It's called AKS, which is a new service. It's just called Kubernetes as a service. You do one command, you have a cluster up and running. You don't even see your head notes anymore. The head notes mm-hmm. are responsible for all the HA and scheduling. You don't see them. That's totally managed behind the door the, 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 in the background. You just say, I want three SQL servers and I want uh, five Spark containers and make it so and make sure they're up and running all the time. 
Yeah. So it's Amazon EKS Elastic Container Services. Yeah, yeah you have AKS and uh, Google <laughs> probably has something else. Yeah. So yeah, from that point of view. Now it's also getting simpler. Because if you look at the, the orchestrators, you had the Docker Swarm, you had Kubernetes, and you had Mesos with DCOS. Mm-hmm. And that's getting simpler now because uh, Docker Swarm kind of uh, threw in the towel. And they're now becoming, well, either being subsumed by Kubernetes or they're subsuming Kubernetes. I think it's the first one. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it They're aligning one. with, let's be, let's uh, uh, no, the positive alignment. <laughs> nah, they're just becoming an, uh, an API through which you can access Kubernetes. But if you yeah. do that, as far as I can tell, and haven't looked in too much detail there, uh, you only get a subset of Kubernetes functionalities because Kubernetes does more than what uh, DocSwarm can do. Which is fine. I mean, Docker, Docker Swarm, the way I saw it, was simply if you want to do something with Docker containers, and you want to have some kind of orchestration, you can choose to get a other project on top of that, like a Mesos Kubernetes, or something simple that just comes with the Docker container. And that was Docker Swarm. Yeah. Easy to use, limited capability. So Kubernetes has now said, okay, we're going to integrate the Docker Swarm API so you can just use your, your, your existing Docker Swarm stuff in a Kubernetes environment. And, yeah, I think that means that Docker Swarm is yeah, not going to be evolving anymore. But it's still good yeah. to have the limited, easy-to-use, uh, low, low barrier of entry, let's say, uh, yeah. orchestrator in there. That's good. You kind of need that. Yeah. It's the same way that uh, if you install uh, uh, Docker on your Windows laptop, you get uh, Kitematic with there, in there which is a yeah. very simple, nice little tool. It's very great for demos. <laughs> totally unusable in production. But it's just something you need. So when you start with this stuff, you have something to start with. And you don't have to go into the deep end from the start. Yeah, yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. So again, containers and Hadoop. Um, sure, on some parts it works, but there's a bit of hype going on there. And I'm a bit afraid that the hype that Big Data and Hadoop have enjoyed, I would say, in the last couple of years, is now shifting over to the whole container environments, where containers are the thing that can do everything automatically without having anything to do yourself. And yeah, it's a bit an exaggeration, I guess. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but again, I'll, there's going to be three, uh, no, four articles in the show notes. One's going to be from uh, Blue Data called Big Data and Container Orchestration Corporate Kubernetes, which is the one I see as a bit of too much hype. And then I've got three others from uh, Bonsai Cloud, never heard mm-hmm. of them, about Spark, Scaling Spark, and Zeppelin Spark, which is a bit more in depth on how you could actually do the Spark part in Kubernetes for people that actually are interested in looking at that. Fair enough. So that's it about Hadoop and containers for me. Okay. So I would like to have a quick shout out. Um, This is a a little bit more recent, uh, which is on the 13th of December, uh, we had an early Christmas present delivered, uh, Hadoop 3.0 GA. Congratulations to everybody involved. Yep. And when you say Hadoop GA, does that mean... Hadoop with Hive and Spark and Zookeeper and Kafka and whatever. Well, so it's it's the <laughs> it's the Hadoop project uh, core elements. So it's mm-hmm. Hadoop Common, HDFS, Yarn, uh, MapReduce, and then the other sort of Hadoop related projects at Apache have their own sort of release schedule. So okay. you know, Ambari, Avro, Cassandra, Chakwala, HBase, Hive, Mahout, Pig, Spark, Tez, Zookeeper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, I just wanted you know, to, to make you say that because a lot of people think, oh, Hadoop is new. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Claude Erwin and Hortner, is coming out with new stuff today? Nope. This is the Apache Hadoop project itself. Exactly. So the 
we'll, which we'll is the put, basis of everything and when it's day release the rest comes up right that's right yeah so we'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes and you can expect um sort of the major distribution providers i'm sure will have sort of uh, early adopter releases coming up um in the new year mm-hmm. um and we'll put some links out to the uh, the release notes and things like that but we've we've talked about uh, the main sort of Hadoop 3.0 features um, in some of our um, sessions from the DataWorks Summit, actually. And I think nothing that I've uh, seen here has uh, particularly changed. There's nothing new, I don't think, having scanned through the the release notes uh, just now. Mm. Um, So nothing nothing new in terms of uh, nothing that we haven't spoken about before. But uh, you know, expect some some new and interesting changes to distributions in in 2018. Yeah, I mean, the main news for me here is uh, that it's uh, I won't say feature freeze because that happened a lot early before, but now you know that this is what Hadoop three is going to be. Yeah. So this is not yet. Uh, personally, I would not put a 3.0 uh, release of anything in production because there's a reason it's a point zero release and the point one release is usually very quickly to come out after that in the next couple of months. But if you're doing stuff with Hadoop and it's a very core part of your business or you're building applications up of Hadoop, 3.0 is now out. You can see what it can, what it can do. You can test your applications with it as in a production environment should be. But this is where I think still some, uh, I wouldn't call it instabilities, but let's say edge cases will crop up. And I would expect that the big distributions out there, it's going to be another month at least before those get uh, released with a, I don't know, 3.0.1 or something. Yeah, I mean, the I wouldn't expect any of the major distributions will have a, a GA release um, within the, the first quarter. I think you can expect it. It'll be a little while after that yeah. before you'll see a, an HDP based on this, for example. Yeah, I'm expecting when the big uh, big events uh, start happening, the 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 what you call it, uh, the summits, and yeah. uh, what's the other one again? Uh, Strata stuff yeah. like that. When they, that's when these things get announced, right? So by the summer, we sh- I should expect something by the summer. I would think that's a safe and bet. Yeah, we can say that because that shouldn't be a prediction, so it shouldn't happen and it shouldn't occur in our next episode. <laughs> so just telling Dave it shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, before that, again, if you want to play with this stuff, hey, do it and make sure you are prepared when those uh, releases do happen. Because when those do come out, that's when things go very fast. Yep. So anything particular that you enjoy most in a three release? Uh, actually, yeah. I think that for me, it's probably erasure coding. I think that's the biggest. Um, I think that's the biggest important piece that I've seen so many people really pushing for. Mm. Um, so erasure coding for those that aren't familiar um, is essentially the ability to reduce. Uh, the amount of space used by replication of data. You know, typically, HDFS will replicate about uh, 3x. Um, using erasure coding, you reduce that about to about 1.4x. Um, and th- there are some trade-offs for that. Uh, and traditionally, erasure coding is going to be used for you know, storing colder or less frequently accessed data um, because there is a, a network and a CPU overhead for um, sort of retrieving erasure-coded data. But 
you know, as data lakes get larger and more and more historical data gets stored, I think we're going to see that being uh, more and more uh, important. So I think that's probably the the number one thing for me. How about you? What's your three? Oh, uh, it's actually the eraser coding thing. It's ironic because basically eraser coding it's a kind of raid. And all these years we've told people RAID is bad for Hadoop. And what does Hadoop 3.0 do? It incorporates RAID. Okay, <laughs> this does not make my job easier, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah, software RAID done further up the stack. Mm. <laughs> of course, in the, in the cloud environments, it's a lot less important. Because in yeah. cloud environments, uh, even the three times replication is something you don't really have to do because you have decoupled storage anyway, which is already yeah. backed up by the cloud backends. And erasure coding will help me, I think, because today, even in cloud, people are still keeping that three times replication because that's how you do Hadoop. With having erasure coding in there, you can tell people, see, it's not entirely necessary. Yes, there's some trade-offs, which are different on-premise and in the cloud, mm-hmm. but you don't have to be religious about this 3x application anymore. So it'll help people, I think, save some money and uh, yeah, duplicating it a lot of times. Because if I look particularly at Azure, which I know best, behind the scenes, Azure already replicates everything three times. Yeah. And then in your environment, in your Hadoop environment, you replicate it again three times. You replicate it nine times. Now, I agree <laughs> that the three times that you replicate, that's one you have under control and the one in the back end you don't have control over. But again, beforehand, you did replication for safety. So you couldn't resilience, that you didn't lose your data. That's covered. But you also did it for uh, data locality so yeah, that you had before. more chance. It had a CPU close to the data blobs so that you can actually do it on the same chassis. On-premise, Makes total sense. Although with big, with faster networking these days, uh, it's not that big of an issue, but still it makes sense. In the cloud, where typically a storage is going to be co-located somewhere else anyway, it never happens. <laughs> it's impossible. So it's different. What I'm looking for in three though, that's the Docker thing. Mm-hmm. I'm very. Uh, I mean, the Docker thing. It could be a marketing, let's add another logo to the thing, and now everybody's happy we do Docker, so they won't talk about it anymore, and we can get on with the real stuff, yeah. or it's going to be a game changer. I have no idea which way it's going to go. Maybe a topic for your uh, 2018 predictions? Um, no, nah, it's too soon. <laughs> <laughs> if something happens there, then it's going to be for the next next year, for 2019, because it's only coming out probably in a usable form, as you said, by... Let's be, let's say summer. Yeah. So it's not going to be enough to change a lot of things this year. But again, I'm curious on how that's going to evolve because I've always felt that it got added to Hadoop because a certain vocal minority, I would say, and I have no idea if that's true, it's just my personal uh, feeling. There was a vocal minority that wanted to have containers in Hadoop and mm-hmm. having mesos in there kind of muddy the waters a lot, annoying and la. Okay, yarn will do containers. So now you're happy. So I kind of feel that that's how it's got in there. <laughs> so it's tool without a real need. So they have a couple of use cases for long-running jobs and web front-ends to put stuff. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have stuff there. But I don't know if that's going to be where it's going to be used or how it's going to evolve. And that's, uh, I'm curious. Fair enough. All right. Finishing off. Uh, oh, yeah. I got one uh, little thing I want to talk about which is something I will be talking about in the future predictions as well. 
and it's something new something new that is coming up more often when you're talking about well, big data in the cloud i must admit and it's about the data prepping it's the job of the data engineer to look at the raw data coming in, take out uh, incomplete rows, uh, add defaults, anonymize stuff, and so on, and so on. And traditionally, that's always been a very tedious and uh, yeah, work-intensive piece of work before the data scientists could actually start doing the data science stuff with the machine learning and aggregation or whatever couple of weeks ago I think by the time this goes out uh, Google uh, put a blog post out, uh, link in the show note of course, called Google Cloud Data Prep Spreadsheet Style Data Wrangling Powered by Google Cloud Data Flow and uh, by coincidence I know of another cloud being Azure that also has something similar and there's going to be a link there as well it's called Data Transformation by Example in Azure Machine Learning Workbench and I'm pretty sure Amazon is actually is also working on this or has just released it and I missed it. But this is something quite new and I really like it because on the one hand, it takes work, tedious work away from the data engineer. So he doesn't have to do the stupid stuff anymore. It also is a very nice example of, of using artificial intelligence and machine learning in a practical application. Because of what these things do actually is allow you to have a number of columns. And let's say you have the the traditional date stamp. Uh, year, 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 dash, month, month, dash, day, day, space, hour, hour, colon, minute, minute, colon, second, second, dot, second, 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 second. I want to have a quarter. Okay, I can write a couple of lines of Python scripts, uh, PySpark or whatever, and do that. But you don't have to anymore. What you can do with these tools is just say, okay, make a new column by example, and on the row that has a date stamp in January, just put in Q1. And at that point, the tool will look at the data columns and try to extrapolate what you mean. And I've been playing with these things, and they're actually pretty good. And this is just a very simple example, but there's the, the, the one of the, the examples I use a lot is the bike renting in London and how many bikes should I have on hand at any given time. The incoming data, you get event data mostly saying, okay, every second, this is the current uh, inventory. Mm-hmm. What I want to know is give me a two-hour block and uh, predict how much bikes I need to have in that two-hour block. That makes it usable, let's say. Now, converting these date stamps into a two-hour block, that takes quite a bit of coding. Well, quite a bit. It, it's not trivial, with these things, it's as trivial as just saying, okay, this row has this two-hour block, this row has this two-hour block, and it just does it all, it aggregates it all, and it's done. And the powerful thing here is, and that's the main thing I want to talk about here, actually, if you do it with a Python script and stuff like that, you kind of build that Python script particularly for the piece of data you have. And in a lot of cases, you're working on subsamples of data. You're not working on the entire petabyte, you're working on a couple of megabytes or a couple of gigabytes just to develop your algorithm, develop your, your flow, develop your solution. And when you then go to the real cluster, whether in cloud or in-premise, where the big data stores are, a lot of the time you have to look at your script again and all of those little if tests where you have some exceptions, you have to do it again. The way that these things work is that that's where the data prep uh, terminology comes uh, comes from. They actually make a kind of data prep object, which you give to a library 
you give it to a data set and then it will run that object intelligently over the bigger data set. And you can simply tell it, okay, I'm, I can live with 5% of bad rows, for example. Mm-hmm. So that way, it allows a data scientist to work locally on his laptop, prepare this data prep thing, and then when he wants to do a big scale uh, test, just move it over to cloud or the on-premise cluster, have the data prep bundled with the whole thing, and make it run there. Just make sure you have your, uh, what you might call it, your, your, your data set available there. Have the same directory where the data set resides under. Locally, it's a couple of rows in the, in the, the production cluster. It's the billions of rows, and it'll, it just works. And these are things that have been building up for some time now. Because, uh, I mean, if you look at Microsoft, I know the background of it. it was a little thing called Project Pendleton, which was a thing of mixing natural language with kind of, uh, I don't know, regular expression, eval- evaluation to, to have a kind of auto- automated recognition of what you're doing. And this is one of the examples where they actually use this in something that saves a lot of people, will save a lot of people a lot of time. So it's a new thing. It's uh, not not a lot of people have used this, I think. So if you haven't looked at this yet, it's not real big data, perhaps, but it's an inevitable part of any uh, machine learning flow. You will always do your feature feature cleaning and feature selection. And these tools are available now in two clouds. So there is uh, availability out there. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised that if these things also get integrated in other tools, other solutions, applications out there. Uh, I'm looking at, uh, I don't know, a Tableau, for example. Uh, Power BI already has it because it's the same thing as the, the Workbench. Um, so, yeah, it's something, it's new. If you haven't looked at this yet, look at it. There's a couple of links there to give you some information. And if you're a data engineer, um, yeah, get familiar with this. So is this something that can also be used with um, a, a streaming workflow as well? So let's say you've, you've gone through yep. your, your sort of batch of data and you've, you've done your, your data prep to create your quarters or your two-hour blocks or whatever. How, how do you then uh, automate that so that all data that flows in from that point onwards uh, has, those, has those sort of elements applied to it? Yeah, you could. I mean, basically, that dprep package, and you have an, uh, an open source library, and you p- typically it's just a, a function call with mm-hmm. the reference to the dprep package and your data set. And if the data set is now one row or a billion rows, doesn't care. It just applies all the transformations in that dprep package to whatever data rows you give it to it. If you do it row by row, you'll have some overhead, of course, because it's a mm-hmm. library call. We need to start up some 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 Java jars, perhaps. So I wouldn't do it on every single event that comes in but typically streaming ingest has a uh, cold part that just dumps everything into big storage for later stuff obviously you can use a deep prep there whenever you do something with that big data for the hot part i would then go to kind of an aggregated state where you would say do it i don't know once a minute or something like that which is also used well once a minute perhaps a bit much but every 10 seconds if you look at a, a, a dashboard that has some alerting you don't typically give a, a, alerts on every event, but on a if on average over the last ten seconds the temperature came too high or too low, then do an alert just to get all the jitter out of the signal to be to, 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 yeah. So, but yeah, totally totally applicable. At the moment, it's not where it's being uh, pointed at. Mm-hmm. It's more pointed at the 
how to set up a good workflow from getting data, making a model, training the model, choosing a good model, productionizing the model, iterate, 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 to act mm-hmm. to facilitate that thing. That's where it's at the moment. But um, yeah, there's really no reason to do that. But with old streaming, yeah, have to be careful what you want, what you do there, because these deep rep packages can be very extensive. You can do a lot in there, and if it takes more than a second to transform that row, and you get a row in every half second, do the math. Yeah, but that's uh, valid for anything, right? Indeed. But uh, yeah, it works well. It's new. I've been working. I've been playing with this stuff since the summer, to be honest, on Azure, but I hadn't seen it anywhere else. So, well, I kind of don't want to talk about things that aren't generally available across the the, the, the internet, let's say. But uh, now that Google also has something, I'm pretty sure Amazon is or or will follow very quickly. And I've always already seen some hints that uh, yeah, local applications will also start integrating this stuff. And it's also a very nice example of how, of how artificial intelligence can really make your life easier. Because really, just playing with this stuff, it's like okay, I'm gonna. I, this shouldn't work. Crap, he can do that too. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> and the vice, and the, the opposite as well. Simple things like okay, have two columns. Okay, add them together. He couldn't do that. Really. Yeah, that was too simple. <laughs> and again, it's also something you, you wouldn't want to do in a, in a, in a feature cleaning step. Because if you're just going to add two columns together, well, just let the model do that. Yeah, yeah. So from that point of view, I can understand. I was kind of really, I wanted to do a little demo for, for a customer. I was in a, in a preview program and yeah, that should, that should work, right? Oh, it doesn't. Crap. Okay, but it's a very complicated <laughs> thing extracting because these things are also they, they they know what the data types are. They do uh, they do discovery on the columns to see it, is this integer text, date, time, stuff like that. And from that point, they can also start interpreting that data. So yeah, it's it's a it, it's pretty powerful already. And looking at how AI and machine learning is advancing year on year on year, this could really become very very powerful. Excellent. I'm all for AI making our lives easier. Well, I'm all for AI actually doing something except making a lot of very complicated papers. <laughs> <laughs> that too. And we're still away off from the self-driving car, I'm afraid. So this is a nice first step, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. And that's all I have. And looking at the clock, we're on the 40-minute line somewhere already. Yeah. So unless you have anything else to add... That's it from me. If it's all for you, it's all from me. And that's all the time we have for today. We hope, as always, you enjoyed the Serving Us Bite-sized Big Data. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelfin.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelfin.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until next time, my name is John. My name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.